0: Welcome to Shelf Life, a podcast where I, Nicole Barbosa, chat with some of the coolest people in publishing about the wonderful world of books. In each episode, my guest and I will chat all about their book, Real or Imaginary, and then place it on a shelf alongside other authors and books that inspire them. Great literature frozen in time. It's definitely one for all the bibliophiles. In today's episode, I chat with author Camille Perry, As a former librarian and books editor for both Cosmopolitan and Esquire, it's fair to say that Camille knows a thing or two about books. Her first novel, The Assistants, which came out in 2016, was written while Camille was working as the assistant to the editor-in-chief of Esquire, and is a fantastically fun and hilarious read. Her second novel, When Katie Met Cassidy, is a beautiful love story between two women that is equal parts touching and funny. It was also one of my favorite books of 2018. I really loved chatting with Camille about her background as a librarian and books editor, as well as the special components of her two novels that make them must-reads. I really hope you enjoy this episode. So I am just thrilled to be here today with Camille Perry. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you today.
0: And we can talk about everything that we love about books. I know that you are a former books editor for both Cosmo and Esquires. How did those jobs come about? Because it's not as easy as just going on social media and saying, hey, I want to be the books editor, you know, of Cosmopolitan <laughs> and Esquire. Which one did you do first and how did you go into those jobs?
1: I was at Esquire first and... Prior to my magazine life, I was a librarian. So books were always sort of like a big part of my life, and I always knew that I wanted to be a writer, which is why I was always finding ways to make part of my job being surrounded by books. Also, having access to free books, which is a great perk <laughs> to be a librarian, and then also getting into books coverage in magazines. But I started at Esquire as an intern. While I was a librarian, I kind of started to feel like I wanted to learn a little bit more about how the publishing world worked because it seemed like this mysterious place place behind a dark curtain and I just didn't have any access to it. I didn't know anybody who worked in it or, you know, it just all seemed very glamorous and inaccessible. So I started doing internships. Fortunately, I lived close enough to New York City at the time that I could easily do an internship in the city. And that's how I stumbled into a fiction internship at Esquire, which then eventually led to me becoming an assistant at Esquire and I was the assistant to the editor-in-chief David Granger and one of the other things that I got to do was assist Tyler Cabot who was an editor there at the time with all the books coverage so that's sort of how I I gained my experience that way.
0: Had they had a books editor before at Esquire?
1: I got my job at Esquire in 2009 like right after the financial collapse where a bunch of layoffs and crazy things were happening in like the entire country but Mm -mm. especially in magazines at the time yeah so I sort of filled in the shoes of a few different jobs that were combined (laughs) into one like I could do a little bit of copy editing there was a fiction assistant position that was dissolved and so I sort of was doing that job for Tyler Cabot there wasn't actually a books editor at Esquire at Cosmo, my official title was books editor at large, which basically meant I was the books editor there, but I wasn't a full-time employee there. So I was a freelancer. I was an independent contractor.
0: i be correct in saying that it led to your ideas for books.
1: Absolutely. Like I said, I, I was working as David Granger's assistant at Esquire. That was my primary job. That was my main responsibility was to be the assistant to the editor in chief. And it was there that I got the idea for the novel, The Assistants, because it was a second career for me. I had been a librarian. So I was old to be an assistant. I was excited to be working at a magazine that I really, really loved. But I had also like kind of taken a pay cut to work there and, you know, making all these compromises. And I just recall feeling at the time that I was like looking around. And like I said, the financial collapse had recently happened. So there were a lot of people who were Money was on everybody's mind and debt was on everybody's mind. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, like I've tried really hard to make all of like the right decisions and the smart decisions in terms of my career trajectory. And I thought I would be in such a better place by now than I am. I had all of this debt. I was not really making good money. I was only an assistant and like I just felt I had done something wrong. And the more I looked around at my peers, I realized a lot of us were in that position and it made me start to wonder if it wasn't necessarily all my own fault, but was there a social aspect to this? Was this sort of a defining characteristic of The generation that I was part of, I do think that it was, which is what made it a novel and an idea that was larger than just myself. But it certainly started with my own experience and the frustration that I was having with my student loan debt and being an assistant and all of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I also experienced the frustration that came with the 2008 financial crisis. I graduated from university in 2007, and I got a degree in journalism. And I was hellbent on being a journalist. But I felt that kind of friction afterwards in terms of I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do. But also I had a feeling that I better hurry up and figure it out. So it is really interesting that our generation, even though The issues that came with the financial crisis had nothing to do with our generation. It's interesting how we definitely felt the the, the brunt of it, didn't we? We were, the uh, unfortunately, the the casualty that came with that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, well put. Uh, That's exactly how I feel.
0: Yeah, it's pretty frustrating. But going back to your excellent book, so The Assistance came out in 2016 and there are so many levels of that book where I find myself being like, yep, that's exactly how I feel. I'm totally a Tina or I'm totally an Emily. And for everyone who has read either one or both of your books and knows your writing, I feel that you just have this great ability to bring the reader into the story piece by piece. And I say that not meaning anything like, you can't get quickly into the book because as I said to you, I was a third way of reading your book when I was was in the car after having just bought it. But I find that in the first couple of pages, you're like, oh my gosh, I know exactly what this book is going to do for me. I know exactly how I'm going to feel. I know what these characters are going through. And I think that's so great because sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer to get into a book and then you end up falling in love with it. But I felt like it was instant for me when it came to how you write the dialogue, how you kind of position the characters, and do you want to just give a brief synopsis of what The Assistance is about?
1: The Assistance is about a group of young women assistants who use their billionaire media mogul boss's expense account to pay off their student loan debt. Primarily focuses on... Tina, who is the assistant to this media mogul. And it sort of starts off with a technical error. She doesn't intend to be stealing money from her company to pay off debt, <laughs> but it sort of happens. And then one thing leads to another and more and more people get involved, namely Emily Johnson gets involved. And then it sort of just circles out from there and becomes really out of her control. <laughs> I
0: absolutely love it. So going into the world of Tina and Emily's, you have two underpaid, overworked women at the Titan Corporation, which just breeds male dominance, they're essentially getting what they feel they deserve. Tina pays for her boss's flight on her two credit cards and then files for reimbursement. But then the manager calls and says, actually, no, we're gonna comp it, it's no big deal. But by then, they've already reimbursed her, which I've always wanted to know. By the time you get to page 20, Emily has already Decided that she's going to proposition Tina and tell her that she knows and strike up a deal with her. And I'm just wondering, how was your thinking in terms of wanting her to get caught so quickly? Did you not want her to sweat it out a little bit and us to see what happens? Or was it really important for you to make sure that she formed that alliance with Emily really early on in the book?
1: I felt like it was important to get Emily in there. Pretty quickly in terms of the structure of the book and how I wanted it to go for a few reasons. One, I like fast paced books. I like to get to the the meaty stuff as soon as possible. And I think it was important to establish Tina as a character who most of us could sympathize with and empathize with. We would really struggle if we were presented with this opportunity of we've got this check in our hand, the check is in our name, it is exactly almost the dollar, the same amount as our student loan debt. It's not really hurting anyone if we keep it. So I wanted really for her to struggle with that moral dilemma, but at the same time, I just wanted to get to the action because most of us know if we're reading this book She's going to cash that check. And so that's the inciting incident from a crass perspective, right? And so the thing is, it's a really stupid thing to do. And for everyone who's going, no, don't do that. That's so dumb. There's no way you're not going to get caught. Of course, she almost immediately gets caught, right? Almost immediately. But who does she get caught by? She gets caught by Emily Johnson, who's the assistant to the guy who's really high up, who's too busy really look at the nitty gritty of of applications and the and the tna reports you've got emily she blackmails tina and so what happens is the reason this can get as out of control as it does is because Tina is just trying to do damage control for so long. Until basically the, the third act when she really comes into her own and finds her strength and, and becomes the hero of the story and yeah. that she becomes way more active. But at the start, Tina's a bit more passive and afraid in the way that I think I would be if I were really in that situation. Yeah. So that's why I sort of had Emily enter the picture as, as quickly as she did. Because yeah. she's just loads of fun and I loved writing her. I wanted to get her as quickly as possible.
0: And her look- amount was insane i mean she wasn't hitting around <laughs> tina's was just under 20 grand which i'm not saying that's not a lot of money but then Emily's just like, my amount's like 70 grand.
1: If you're a lawyer uh, and you went to a good school and you have 200 grand when you graduate in student loan debt. In fact, checking the novel, we looked at those numbers a lot to make sure that they were reflective of the full spectrum of what debt really is. And you'd be shocked, the numbers that people graduate with. Plus, Tina's a little bit older than Emily. So the idea is that she'd been paying it off for a while already. So she had more debt than that, but she's been dutifully paying it off. So that's what she has left is 20 grand. That's not what she graduated with.
0: I actually paid off my student loans this year, which
1: is... Congratulations! Thank
0: you. It's an amazing feeling. It only took me just under nine years. It does take a long time. And I can't move on really without commenting on the fact that they think they get away with this, and you think that it's over, and then Robert shows up to confront her and to talk to her about it. And it's... I wasn't expecting that. Did you enjoy writing that bit?
1: I did, and I I did kind of want that. I think everyone sort of expects a certain trajectory when this occurs, and you think that getting caught would be the last thing that happens. I mean, caught for real, like by the boss. So I wanted that to be a little bit of a surprise and more of like a midpoint twist where then the story sort of of changes direction a little bit after that.
0: You know, the message that I got is that ultimately, at the end of the day, no matter how hard you work, these two women are just – trying to make their mark and trying to climb up that proverbial ladder and sometimes you just walk away from a situation or you just are confronted with a situation and it just makes sense and it doesn't matter who is talking to you at the time or whatever no one's really going to talk you out of actually going through with it are they?
1: No, and, and I think it's important to point out that to a certain extent, the characters in this book are privileged in that they are college-educated white women, right? But they also are, they're lower middle class. They grew up in very blue-collar um, situations where, you know, their focus is on survival. It's not like the first intention was, we're going to go out and buy mansions and expensive purses yeah, or whatever exactly. and, and fancy shoes. It was about survival, and, it, and it, it's just, it's sort of what what are we willing to do to make it in this world and in this country where the game is rigged against a lot of people, most people, even to just be middle-class. And if you have ambition and you want to, you know, get to a certain level of success, there's a lot working against you. And so sometimes you have to break the rules in order to unrig the game because the rules are all set against you.
0: Sometimes no matter how hard you work, they will always be unfortunately stacked in, not in your favor. But the other thing that I really love about this book is it just oozes empowerment the friendship of Emily and Tina ultimately kind of they becomes kind of like more of a partnership and kind of more of like a transactional partnership in terms of how they're going to help each other but then I just feel like it is a really nice friendship and it's born of this kind of empowerment and I just was wondering where When you're writing, uh, whether it's for your books or or anything else that you're writing, where you look to for inspiration when you're writing characters, particularly female characters?
1: Well, that was definitely something I thought consciously about. I knew I wanted to write a book that was pretty much mostly about women characters, like coming together and working together and female empowerment in writing. This big thing I looked to was the movie nine to five with Dolly Parton and Jane Fonda, because it was a great model in terms of tone and it really is a female empowerment plot it's one where my favorite movies. <laughs> the women come together against that. Yeah. So there, there's that. And I looked at a lot of movies for tone and examples of female characters. Like for example, I looked at working girl and I looked at some of the great dynamic duos like Thelma and Louise, but I loved Outrageous Fortune, which had Bette Midler and Shelley Long. These films that sort of were getting less and less of these days. There's a lot of great, strong female characters out there that I used for inspiration.
0: Were you kind of in a similar situation or did you just think to yourself, you know what, this is a really common, central theme that's happening to my generation and I really feel like we could use a book like this.
1: So I paid off my student loan debt as well and the paid off my student loan. Thank you. But had I not written a novel about student loan debt, I don't know that I would have paid off my student loan debt. <laughs> I graduated with loads of debt. I did not grow up in a wealthy family, not even close, but I did choose to go to the school of my dreams, which was NYU, which is very expensive and a private college. And I did have a little bit of scholarship money and some financial aid, but I still graduated with loads of debt. And by the time I was nearing 30 and was Working as an assistant at Esquire, I felt like I had made a lot of huge, huge mistakes that were going to be impossible. I just didn't know how I was ever going to pay off my debt. Like it, the math just wasn't working out. And if I did pay off my debt, how would I ever afford to buy a home? I realized that I felt like I was underneath a boulder and I had to figure out a way to get out. The idea directly, one of the things that I used to do for my boss was his expenses. That's what an assistant does for their boss. And I would fill out David's expenses and his expense reports. And there was literally one day where I had remembered that my student loan debt was due. And right there at my work computer, I like moved over the window of his expenses, and I opened up the window for my student loan so I could quickly make an online payment before the deadline. And so there was one moment where I had those two windows open on my computer, and something just clicked in my mind where I was like, oh my god, if only I weren't an honest person. like." <laughs> and I would have never, ever, ever, ever done that oh my in real gosh. life. But it that was what sparked the idea for the novel, that what if. And then and i i just i also really just love a heist like i love a heist novel yeah. i love those kinds of stories so once i had that seed of an idea ah uh. Using an expense account to pay off student loan debt, because like when you start comparing money to money, it can make you sick, right? Like, especially if you're talking about corporate money or or, like executive money, that's like Rupert Murdoch level of wealth where his lunch would pay for her rent, you know? And when you start looking at it that way, it just can make you like sick to your stomach. And that was what I really wanted to get at. Basically, it was very personal to me
0: what a spark of an idea and turned into a bestseller. So, I mean, well done you. I mean, bravo. That's just amazing. And it is funny, that kind of feeling of entitlement. And especially when it comes to student loans, I don't know if you felt this way, but I cherished my university experience, my college experience. And on bad days, especially when my debt was piling up, I was like, oh my God, I wish I had never gone. But for the most part, I wouldn't change those four years. They were, they were amazing. But When you're sat there at your desk working hard for whatever paycheck you're getting and you are just like, oh my gosh, my loan payments. Because I mean, at one time, Camille, my loan payments were like $800 a month. And I was just like crippled. And it didn't matter if I had paid off five grand for that year. The interest alone was just making my eyes water. And there is a point where you're just kind of like, is all of this worth it? I could just take that money truck over there and just rob it and I'd be set for life. But unfortunately, most of us have the the wherewithal to know that that shouldn't probably happen. But it's just, it is frustrating, isn't it? Because you got to find that balance of being honest versus, oh my gosh, I just deserve so much more. It's frustrating, isn't it?
1: You start to freak out. You start to um, get feel really desperate and trapped and locked in, and that's a really scary feeling. It's a really scary feeling to have. And then you start making life decisions based in fear, and with this philosophy of, of there not being enough, you know. And then you start to feel guilt all the time. Like, I want to go out for my friend's birthday drinks, but oh my god, do I really? Can I really spend the you know the money tonight? And it just it. Permeates into every single aspect of your life in a way that is just, it's always on you. It's always on you, and it's so hard. It's so hard to get off. I think it's really underestimated the toll that it takes to have debt over your head like that.
0: You know, just like the heroines of the book, you come out the other end and you're a stronger person and you learn lessons, and ultimately it makes for a great ending, which is why The Assistance is such a great book. Now, moving on to your second bestseller, which came out this year when Katie met Cassidy. I know I told you I wasn't going to play favorites, but I think I have to say I just love this book so much. And it is definitely a love story. All you have to do is look at the cover of the two hearts, which are formed to (laughs) be kissing, to know that it's a love story. And it pulls at your heartstrings. I mean, that feels like an understatement. And, you know, for anyone who has read the book, they'll know the ups and downs that come with the story. But I'm so happy that it came with a happy ending. What did you because I know I loved reading the book and enjoyed all of it but what did you enjoy the most about writing this book
1: first off I want to say knowing what I know of you and your love of Nora Ephron I am not surprised that you liked the cover of this book and its title and <laughs> the way that it has uh, Nora Ephron vibes it, to it, it so. so does she
0: would be so proud Camille I promise oh
1: god bless <laughs> you for saying that <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but I'll take it. (laughs) I had been working on this story forever, even long before I got the idea for the assistance. And then that, ended up becoming my first novel. I had been trying to write a story that was very similar to what When Katie Met Cassidy became. I just couldn't get all the parts right. I wasn't cracking the code of how to make it work as a novel, and I tried a lot of different things. But by the time it was time for me to say, okay, the assistance got bought, the assistance was going to come out, I needed to start figuring out what my next book was going to be. I went back to a lot of this old material that I had that was just sort of car parts basically and i suddenly figured out how i wanted to write the story and what i knew i wanted to do was take a very traditional romantic comedy plot structure and use that very traditional plot which we all know right is meet lose get you know what you're getting that's the structure that's it every time I twist on it and make it not only about two women but a woman who one would had never dreamed of ever falling in love with a woman before, that would be Katie. And not, not only that, but never could she have imagined she'd fall in love with a woman like Cassidy who is extremely masculine presenting and just a very queer figure that breaks down a lot of sort of gender and sexuality binaries. So yeah, um, I wanted the book to be subversive in content, but not in structure. And those two things needed to sort of marry one another in a way that that didn't clash, but that complemented one another. And that that was like my main goal with this book. I really wanted to write a romantic comedy. And I wanted it to have queer characters and have this aspect of representation to it. But I also wanted it to please readers of The assistance who would n- maybe never come to a book that had queer content in it. So I wanted it to be as much for straight audiences as it was for queer audiences. And that was a really tricky thing to try. Try to pull off, and I don't know if I did, but I tried.
0: <laughs> you absolutely did, and one of my favorite lines isn't even in the book. It's on the back of the book, and it's when it comes to Cassidy, Katie can't think straight.
1: That didn't come from Putnam marketing or oh, publicity. Oh, fantastic! I, I was like, this is the line that we're going to use.
0: That is, I mean, and I and I love it so much, and, and it totally makes sense that it came from you. And one of the things that you have said in previous interviews, and and you just said it now, you wanted to write a love story and it it is a classic love story as in meet and lose and get, as you said. And it just so happens that it's between two women. And I love that. The fact that this book is equal parts tender and equal parts surprising. And it's a love story where the two characters, they don't know what's going to happen, but we are so privileged as the reader to feel like we have an idea that there is indeed going to be a happy ending. And I just was wondering, before you even wrote this, you said you've had this in your mind for a while, but there were kind of some moving parts that weren't there always. But did you always know that that book would end the way that it did?
1: I knew that I really, really wanted it to have a happy ending. I didn't know exactly how that would look or exactly what the scene would play out as, but I knew that I wanted these two women to end up together and the reason I really wanted that and there was some talk early on in very early drafts where trusted readers of mine would suggest, well, you know, maybe they don't even end up together at the end and I always knew that always rubbed me the wrong way because this is about two women it's so rare that anything for the LGBTQ community or that features LGBTQ characters has a happy ending it was like less stereotypical to give it a happy ending because we're so accustomed to seeing queer characters or queer love get a tragic ending. Yeah, they're always right? sad. <laughs> it's always sad or somebody dies or somebody gets sick or somebody gets beat up. And I just knew that I did not want that. I knew that I really wanted this. We all deserve a happy ending like this. And those great Nora Ephron sort of stories, we're accustomed to having that happy ending. But when you're starting to get into different communities that are less represented on the page and on the screen, those happy endings are less common. I wouldn't have compromised on that.
0: That is so true. And one thing I will say is that even two years on, I think that is such a true statement in terms of similar to Nora Ephron stories and how she wrote things and as you alluded to earlier one of the reasons that I probably not realizing it was I loved the title because it's like When Harry Met Sally. It is one of those things where I feel like love stories nowadays don't always have a happy ending but when you do find that happy ending and it is a surprising happy ending it's all the more better and I think that's one of the things that I I loved about this book but one thing that I didn't love about this book is nothing to do with you. Paul Michael, I hated him so much. and <laughs> That's I, fine. You, I, I, can, you I, can hate I, him. I just, I hate the fact that he's so posh with his stupid two names. And I just, I hated the way that he treated Katie, and so for people who haven't read the book yet, I'm going to do a total spoiler. Paul Michael is Katie's former fiancé who dumps her. But there's a heartbreaking scene, and I'm not even kidding, I cried. I cried when this happened because it was at the point where Katie and Cassidy – We're allowing themselves to relax into this relationship and so basically I'll set the scene really quick for listeners and again spoiler alerts so Katie and Cassidy are going to this big gala and they're all dressed up and Cassidy is in this really sexy tuck and you know Katie just looks gorgeous and they bump into Paul Michael and his family like literally his entire family I was like oh my god his whole family is there and she essentially pretends like her date is busy, and it's not Cassie. And oh my God, it just breaks my heart so much. And Cassie, of course walks off and is just so heartbroken as well. And I just it makes me wonder, why do you think we worry so much about what people think, especially in relationships?
1: Thank you for bringing that point up. Because it's a love story, it's easy to to miss how much the conflict for Katie, one, yes, she grew up in a conservative family. She grew up with religion. She's sort of a good girl. But it, her struggle with falling for Cassidy is less about her feelings for Cassidy. She's afraid of being embarrassed. In that scene, she's embarrassed to be seen with Cassidy. And that's why she does what she does. And I think it's easy to, to not realize that even in this day and age when different sexuality are are so much more accepted than they used to be. I mean, gay marriage is now legal, right? I mean, I remember a time in my life when I never thought that would even be possible. What still exists deeply is this idea, especially for those of us who who are women and have been socialized as women, to want to please the people around us and to want to be likable. And part of what Katie has to learn in this novel is that by the end, if she's going to be, in a public relationship with someone that looks like Cassidy does, she has to get used to the fact that no matter how hard she tries, there are just going to be some people that aren't going to like her. And that's a big part of this book. It's not really necessarily stated in words in the book, but that was yeah. that's a that's a huge thing that I wanted to address because so much of it is is about appearances. And part of even for just speaking for myself, I didn't know that I was going to turn out to be someone who's gay or queer or you know I had to learn all of those things and so I had older sisters and I came from a religious family of, of Roman Catholics and I had mental pictures in my head that were rooted from when I was a kid of what it would be like to be an adult and what did that include that included getting married to a man and having babies and doing all of these things that are sort of just dictated for you and you have these images implanted into your head of what your future looks like and what actually you have to do is remake those images you have to you have to readjust them for this new reality and that's hard to do for yourself but then it's hard to have to then do it for your mother and your father and your sister and your friends and your whole family because that's what it is it's a process of of changing what the portrait looks like of your life
0: yeah, that is so true, and coming to terms with the fact that that picture that you might have had in your head is not perhaps going to be exactly as you thought it was going to be, and and coming to terms with the fact that that's okay, and it's really interesting because, kind of segueing a little bit, knowing you as I do, admiring your work for years, when I read Cassidy I saw you and (laughs) yes I did honestly in terms of style in terms of confidence and in terms of that identity I don't know I just feel like Cassidy empowers and embodies confidence she radiates it and yeah she struggles but she's she's built out who she is and it's really funny because Katie as you said is conservative by upbringing and you know, had her fiancé for a while and now is exploring what else – she wants in terms of a relationship whereas Cassidy the coarse way of saying it is she has a lot of notches on her bedpost but (laughs) but in reality in the game of life you explore you try out things you are adventurous and that leads into our relationships into our sex life and, and Cassidy does not apologize for who she is and I think that's why I loved her so much because Katie and Cassidy are both equals in the sense that they're both lawyers they both have large amount of intelligence and come at it from different perspectives but they are both women who are just essentially trying to figure things out and I love that essentially even though Katie is kind of soul searching a little bit more than maybe Cassidy is I feel like Cassidy did you know when she was kind of struggling with how much she actually cared for Katie but Katie definitely does a bit more soul searching than Cassidy does Probably by the fact that she is in new territory. And to be fair, Cassie's friends are kind of like, what are you actually doing? There is a part in the book where I think people have to ask themselves, maybe speaking for the characters themselves, but just kind of being like, okay, have you really got it figured out? But if you don't have it figured out, can you figure it out together? And that's okay in a relationship. You don't have to have everything figured out right away, do you?
1: Oh, of course not. No, I think any relationship is a constant daily figuring out together. It's, I mean, it's totally a journey that you just, you choose to go on with someone.
0: I think the advantage that Cassidy has, and I certainly felt this way when I was reading through the book, is that she knows that she's going to be okay if this doesn't work out. She knows that she might find somebody else or whatever, but Katie doesn't know that. Katie goes into it with her whole heart. She really does expect for Cassidy to smooth out the edges and make sure that it's if she's gonna take this journey with her, that it's gonna be pay, doesn't she?
1: One thing about this book is depending on what you bring to the table, you can interpret it in a lot of you could interpret it those characters in a lot of different ways. And um <laughs> I think I love hearing different people's takes on it because they're obvious they're all right. Yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think they're different readers have different reactions to certain things and they're all equally true that's what's great about books right (laughs)
0: yeah absolutely you said in a vogue article that you going back to Nora Ephron look to her work for models of love stories and whether it's Harry and Sally whether it's Joe Fox and Kathleen Kelly I was just wondering what elements of Nora's writing style you were really keen to include in this love story
1: there's only one Nora. So I, I really looked to her work as as inspiration. And tonally, I just thought those were good models. Like even though she was writing movies, and I, I was writing a book, in terms of tone and voice, when you say something's a romantic comedy, and I knew that this, I wanted this this novel to be a romantic comedy, the first thing that comes to mind is movies. But Nora was so Literate and literary and everything she created had such depth to it and there were always many different layers of what she created and what I love about even just her romantic comedies is that they're tiny little time capsules like they're so timely in terms of what was going on at the time that they were created you could still look at them because of this timeliness I just think it really adds to something and that was something I wanted to bring bring to this I wanted it to be sort of representative of like what I see as sort of a cultural moment that we're having right now that can be applied to love and romance.
0: Yeah, I think that is also what makes the book so great. And I do have a question about, so the club that Cassidy and her friends go to is called Metropolis and the Met, as it's, as it's, mm-hmm. as it's coined. And I wondered, I might be reading too much into this, but is the closing of the Met... Symbolic for Cassidy shedding her previous ways in terms of being with different people and moving on to having that soul relationship with Katie.
1: It sure could be. There are a few things Did I was I read trying to get. too much I, into that? <laughs> no, that's what reading is. We, I mean, we all have reader response, and I mean, that's that's what's great about books. And I, you know, I'm hesitant to say exactly what was in my mind in doing something because just because I'm the writer of the book doesn't mean that's the right answer. I mean, yeah. you create something and then it becomes it's out there in the world and it's as much yours as it is mine as it is anybody else's now because it's, it's a story and it, and, it, and it lives on its own. But in terms of from a craft perspective, what I was trying to do with the closing of The Met is, yes, it made concrete the way that Cassidy, when we meet her in this book and right shortly after she meets Katie, is really aging out of her lifestyle. And the closing of the Met, it's forcing her to evolve. It's, it's sort of pushing her into the next chapter of her life. She's 30 years old. She's got these two friends, Gina and Chef Becky and Dahlia, the bartender, who they're like the last remaining people of like Survivors. her old wild friend group. Yeah. You know, people have coupled up, they've left the city, they they're aging out, everybody's getting monogamous and you know, going off and getting their U Hauls and having babies and yeah. and Cassie is sort of holding on to her youth with everything she's got. The other thing that I really wanted to sort of throw in there with the closing of the bar is there are no lesbian bars anymore. There are very few queer spaces left. Particularly in, in my city in New York, there are still like queer parties and like ladies night or whatever. But I think there's maybe one or two surviving bars that really are lesbian bars or, yeah. or gay bars. And that's like a gentrification thing. I wanted to, that aspect to be in there too. Metropolis is based on a combination of different bars that I sort of came of age in. Mm-hmm. Two of them no longer exist. There really are in a whole lot of queer spaces. And particularly as this is a lesbian bar, there really aren't that many in the city. And I wanted to sort of illustrate that.
0: Because I read your stuff all the time, I reference things that you say. And you commented, it might have been in the Vogue article actually, where you said that in terms of queer, gay, lesbian, these terms, you like the word queer.
1: Yeah, I personally like the word queer as a label because I find it to be a label that's sort of an umbrella term yes, that, yes. It, that encompasses many, many, many different um, other yeah. smaller labels, yes. more specific labels. Yeah. yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think that is another thing that is really great about your book. So as a reader who is straight, I very much enjoyed the fluidity of the sexuality that is addressed in the book and how the relationship between Katie and Cassidy it's not 50 shades of gray ridiculous it's not alluding to the fact that oh my gosh a straight woman has had a relationship with a queer woman and oh we can't talk about it it's very much a this is a beautiful relationship and a beautiful love story and It's also about what we do when we have those unexpected opportunities that present themselves and that we fall in love with people that we don't expect to fall in love with. And, you know, in 2018 and going into 2019, do you think we'll ever live in a world where labels don't define us and where we won't have to break things down to comfort or to assure other people that perhaps aren't comfortable with the labels themselves?
1: Oh man, you know what? It's I, quite a I, big I, question. I, I it's a huge question. That, that's another whole podcast, right? I know, it really is. Um, I hope so. It's a tricky question because labels, for one thing, I tried to put as few labels in this book as possible. Like yeah. I tried to put no jargon in this book. I tried to use as few labels as possible because I really did want people to be able to project onto the characters and their yeah. sexualities and, and all that. So. I, for one, am not really a fan of labels. However, labels are a convenience that bring with them certain advantages. Like, a label allows people to find others like them. You know, it it creates community where otherwise there may not be community. Labels are a problem when they're restrictive and they're they're separating us and then, you know, there's a value judgment placed on one label over another in terms of gender and sexuality I really I love what I have seen happening around me just in the past five to ten years I was an English and gender studies major in college and we were talking all about queerness and, and you know gender fluidity and nowhere would you see that in the mainstream for years. But now people are gaining a communicable knowledge of what these terms mean. And labels are I almost feel like they're a necessary evil. I would love to live in a utopia where we didn't need them. I don't know if I see that happening. Certainly not in my lifetime.
0: <laughs> like you said, it could be a whole nother podcast episode and it, it's such a a heavy topic because everyone has an opinion and where those opinions are welcome in a safe, loving community is wonderful. I would agree with your timeline in the the, the last five to 10 years. Obviously, we're coming at it from different experiences and different perspectives. But for me, the element of your book that really brings it all together is love. And love, love carries so much weight when it comes to confusion, when it comes to ignorance, but at the same time, the message that comes through, at least for me, for uh, from when Katie met Cassidy, is that there is no right way to love. There is no, yeah. there is no one size fits all. There is no perfect formula. After having read your book, there are moments where I was just like, "Oh come on," which which is when Katie is in the closet. Uh, (laughs) Pun not intended. Um, Katie is in the closet, which that was Oh, it's intended. Oh, I know it is. I know it is. I know it is. (laughs) But Katie's in the closet, and Cassie is about to make a huge mistake, and she realizes, I love Katie, and I'm going to make this work, and she calls her cell phone, and she- definitely doesn't expect for it to be coming from the closet the ringing but I also love Cassidy's reaction just being like okay what the actual hell is happening
1: (laughs) right now (laughs) yeah I had loads of fun writing that scene it's one of my it's my probably my favorite scene in the book I really um thanks for thanks for laughing so hard at it (laughs) because it makes me it makes me so happy and warm inside to know that you had as much fun reading it as I did writing
0: it you did such a perfect job of showing these characters in each other's worlds and katie trying to bring cassidy into her world with the horse riding and Cassidy bringing Katie into her world, taking her to the Met. And I also just love the moments of jealousy. You know, when Cassidy's talking about the people she hooked up with in the bathroom, and Katie's just like, uh, excuse me? Like, <laughs> I don't even want to be thinking about that. And then they end up uh, going to hook up in the bathroom. So it's great. Everyone needs this book, everyone needs to read it, everyone needs to reread it. And then just go read the assistants. Just read them both in
1: in one go. And uh, I'm all for that. I, I am. I thank you so much for saying that. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> oh,
0: I just and, and they're just such different books as well. And they teach us different lessons. But what's great is your books are for everyone. And I actually had a friend that said to me, you know, I just feel like I haven't found a gay character that I can relate to or that I enjoy reading. Or it just seems like it's accidental. These girl meets girl, guy meets guy. And I said you know what, I can't speak for all the other books that you read before, all the other authors that you've come across, but you will absolutely love this book and will change that perspective. I'm pleased to say that she fell in love with it just as much as I did. So That's
1: so good to hear. Thank you so much. That, That makes my career beautiful to hear. Thank you.
0: I wholeheartedly give you all the praise and there is no surprise to me whatsoever why these books have been so successful So recommend them. And I can also say that When Katie Met Cassidy, one of my favorite books of 2018, is just something that I'm going to pick up time in and time out when I just need a little bit of Camille and when I need a little bit of Nora. I'm just going to pick those up. So one of the last questions and the premise for this podcast is if you could just imagine your books on a shelf and you could have other authors and books sitting alongside your shelf and all that great literature is frozen in time, Who would you want on your shelf and really who has inspired you? Who do you look to? Who are your favorite authors that you'd want on that shelf?
1: Well, obviously we have to have just Nora all over that shelf, right? (laughs) (laughs) Certainly. The novel Heartburn, I know that novel almost by heart. No pun intended. I literally do (laughs) know like every word of it. What's so funny is I used to be a librarian, as you know, and I used to also be a page at the East Middle Public Library where in the town where I grew up, and they are about to renovate the building. And a very kind friend of mine, who's a librarian there, took a photo of the shelf that my two novels are on with the label Perry. These are the literal shelves that I used to shelve books that I used to shelve novels on as a, as a library page and always dreaming that one day I remember always going, well, if I have a book one day, it's going to go right, there, it's going to go right there, P-E, you know, alphabetically. And so I actually now have in my possession a photo of my book on the shelf, and I love the fact that I'm right next to Tom Perotta, alphabetically, because Tom Perotta is one of my favorite novelists ever, and I feel really Amazing. blessed that my books are alphabetically right next to his.
0: Another author that I just absolutely love is Alexander Chi. and he wrote a book this year called How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and one thing that he yeah. comments in in the book is that he went to the Iowa Writers Workshop and he had a professor there or a teacher there that said, go into a bookstore and imagine and, and figure out where your book would be. Go mm-hmm. and like literally make room for your book, like literally move, move books around so that it makes room for your book. And I think that that homage to the library that you stacked books in and you were able to see your book next to somebody who inspires you I mean oh my gosh that just that makes me tear up a little bit actually just thinking about that goosebumps yeah oh my gosh that's that's amazing so also Nora Heartburn for sure absolutely and then Tom Perota yes then I of course have to ask the question that everybody's wondering are there any books on the horizon that we need to be looking out for
1: I am working on something very early stages, and I'm not sure yet what it's going to be. I'll take all of your good vibes, and okay. we'll, I'll figure out what this is all going right. to be. But there's there's nothing um, there's nothing locked in at the moment.
0: That is fine. We will wait with bated breath. Uh, Thank you. I, I, know that it, I know that it will be a bestseller. So um, <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yes, just like your other two books. And how can people get in touch with you to tell you how wonderful you are and how much they loved your books?
1: Well, I'm on social media. I'm on Twitter at Camille Perry. I'm also on Instagram at Camille Perry. That's a great way to get in touch. I'm really just like a little hermit at heart. So it's always pushing me out of my comfort zone to get on there. (laughs) Wow,
0: there's there's definite pros and cons to social media, but the one pro is that you and I met on social media and that I will forever be thankful for. Thank you so, so much, Camille. This has been such a treat to talk to you. As I said, the assistants absolutely loved it. And when Katie met Cassidy, it's just that book that you'll love forever. So thank you so much for coming and talking to me today. Thank you. This
1: has been a pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Shelf Life. I'd love for you to tell me what you thought of it, either on Twitter or Instagram, or by leaving a review on iTunes. Until next time, happy reading!